Hello and welcome to the Finogo FinTalks podcast, where we connect you to the latest in regtech, compliance, and anti-money laundering activity. My name's Dan Sigadu, and I'm your host. Today, we're talking about the future of compliance, fintech, and finance with someone who's always one foot in at least the next decade. I'm joined by Brett King, the founder of the FinTech Moven in the US, founder and CEO of the Futurist Network, author of multiple books such as Bank 4.0 and The Rise of Techno-Socialism, host of Breaking Banks and founder of Revoke Management. I'm actually quite exhausted already just listing out everything you do, Brett. Um, is there anything in particular that you're working on at the moment that you really want to want to spotlight? Um, no, I'm working on a couple of books. Um, so the, the next book for next year is called Branch Today, Gone Tomorrow. So it's looking at the fact that it, the, for the first time in 500 years, branch number, net, net aggregate branch numbers are declining and why and what that means for banks. And I uh, just launched, um, well, it's a year old now, but I launched uh, the Futurist podcast, which is uh, you know where I get to interview all my friends who are futurists and talk about the year 2050 and 2100 and beyond. Um, and so that's just hit number one in category. So uh, we're pretty happy with that. But uh, no, that's sort of the two projects I'm working on at the moment. That's very cool. Thinking about uh, the year 2050 or 2100 for fintech and finance, where do you actually think the, the future of fintech lies? And how do you think fintechs will be able to meet the compliance challenges that's, that are arrayed ahead of them? Well, you know, I, I did see an article, I don't know, it was in Forbes or something last week saying the fintech era is over. And, um, you know, um, like people were proclaiming the dot-com era was over at the end of the, uh, the dot-com boom. Um, and yet, you know, today the, you know, many of the largest companies in the world were dot-coms born. So, you know, when, when you say the fintech era is over, it doesn't mean fintech's impact on the industry is over. It's just that it's matured to a point where now you have these massive fintechs, you know, new bank, um, you know, um, we bank in Shenzhen, you know, TransferWise Wise, you know, and these players who are now some of the largest financial services companies in category, you know, um, New Bank is the largest bank in Latin America with 85 million customers. It's also now, you know, very profitable, which uh, many of the traditional banks, bankers said would never happen with fintechs. They'd, ne they'd never make money. Um, so, you know, we're entering a new era and the new era of, um, uh, the the fintech era is actually you know is going to be more AI application. So the next wave is going to be AI based fintech. So could you do you really call that fintech or is it um, you know AI based infrastructure? Um, you know a lot of the AI stuff is obviously going to be used by banks. So you know uh, the the lines blur a little bit on that front. Well, AI AI is one of those issues where I think people think it's going to solve everything, right? Uh, I think there's there's barely a day goes by where it's not the site the savior of some new problem, and so for us and for work, anyone working in the compliance space and around regulations, the issue is financial crime, right? This massive, very complicated issue, very layered issue. How how can how can AI grow and eliminate financial crime for fintechs, for FIs, for banks at the same time? Well, ninety percent of fraud today is human error, and you know by that we mean social engineering that results in someone giving up their credentials mostly. And then the remainder of the fraud tends to be um, insider fraud, you know, with, within financial institutions, and certainly in terms of the big ticket fraud items. 
So, uh, you know, not a lot of fraud is actually hackers sitting in a dark room hacking, you know, banking systems and payment systems. There are notable uh, exceptions to that, of course, the uh, the Bangladesh Central Bank, uh, you know, Swift Heist and, and stuff like that. But the most common form of, of um, you know, fraud that, you know, we, and that we've got to fix is around identity. And the the core problem, you know, yes, we can throw artificial intelligence at that. We can use things like behavioral heuristics and other elements to uh, to try and reinforce that. But the the key problem is that your mother's maiden name, your date of birth, your address, your social security number, if you live in the states, the, these data points are no longer securable. So the longer we try to keep the financial system running on old identity metrics. Um, then the more financial crime will be able to leverage, you know, those data points. So we need biometric um, data. We need, you know, we need identity uh, as a um, as sort of core national infrastructure. Um, and you know, this is why China. If you look at the mobile wallet schemes there, Alipay has ten thousand times less fraud, um, you know, on a on a dollar per dollar basis than um, card not present transactions in the United States and the UK, for example. And that comes down to the fact that China has a better identity system. So the first thing you've got to do is fix identity. Then you can use AI and um, you know, those elements to, uh, to look at it. And in, in terms of the financial crime, you know, the, the way we look at it today is we, you know, we wait for suspicious transaction reports or you know, the, you know, the banks to trigger an investigation that then goes to FinCEN in the US or the FCA in the UK and the Financial Crime Division, and um, you know it's triggered in that way. That that um, means that we are trying to fight a problem that today, you know, organised crime is already using artificial intelligence to do these mass, uh, you know, brute force attacks and so forth, and large scale social engineering, and we're using hum- manual human methods to try and um, you know protect ourselves against highly automated organisations that are using all the t- and that's not going to, that's not ever going to work. It's never going to be successful. So regulators and financial crime authorities must become technology companies. That's the, you know, that that's the ultimate, um, you know, ultimate goal. Civilization. Yeah. So, I mean, that's, that's an interesting point, right? Cause I think a few years ago, everyone was saying that, uh, in the future, there will be no fintechs, there will be no banks. Every, every company will be a fintech. Every company will be a bank because, well, every company will be a fintech anyway, because, you yeah. Embedded finance is going to be such a such a vital part of the system, but part of that is, like you said, this this idea of how do you how do you make sure that you you know your customer properly, right? How do you conduct proper KYC checks? Because if the if the um, the identity heuristics we use and the identity identity data points that we use uh, are no longer securable, how do you make sure that you're actually understanding your customer? How do you make sure you're actually onboarding the right person? So, you know, I mean, we, when we were starting moving, I'll I give you a little bit of a uh, history lesson or story here. Um, when we were starting moving, we were the first app anywhere in the world. The first, uh, you know, app based on the uh, iTunes, Google Play ecosystem to offer a debit card in app. So we were the very first mobile banking app where you could sign up for a debit card and have it issued without a wet signature. And... Um, we, it took us about 12 months to get the regulator in the U S to agree to us not having a wet signature. They wanted us to be able to complete the 
onboarding the customer digitally, send them out physical documents to sign, and then send it back. And we said, look, it's just, you know, that's not going to improve security at all. A signature is not a, a, a secure element. Um, you know, it can be easily compromised and copied. Um, and, you know, and neither are um, identity documents like a driver's license. So they, they disputed that, of course. They said, well, you know, KYC, the best method we have today is someone turning up at a branch and presenting their documents. And we said, what if we could show you that that's no longer secure? And they said, you can't, that's impossible. So what we did is we got our bank partner in the US, and I won't say who they are, but we ran our IDV algorithm on that. And we found um, three to 4% of people that are presented in branch had used synthetic identities. And we found that through basically finding the image on the driver's license that they'd used and matching that to a fake social media profile. So we know that the social media profile was synthetic, so therefore the identity was synthetic. And um, that was enough for the regulator to let us do our first trial of the first 5,000 um, customers. Wow. I'm impressed it only took you six months to convince the regulator to change their minds. Well, you know, I think, um, you know, we had, you know, I, I'd at least built a fairly good reputation with the regulators at that point in the US and consulted with the Fed and others, you know, because of the, the futurist stuff on the banking policy side. So I knew a lot of those guys. Um, so that did make life a little easier. <laughs> um, but it was also the, the other approach was, which banks never do, is as a fintech, we went to the regulator and we said, look, this is going to happen at some point. You realize that, right? You know, you're not going to be collecting wet signatures in 10 years time. So um, you, you can use us as a test case and we'll give you whatever information you want from the, the prototype and, and from this test run. So we'll be absolutely transparent. So you can learn um, you know, through this process yourself so you can get ready as a regulator for what comes next. And banks never do that because banks are like, well, if the, you know, if the compliance officer tells us no, it's for a good reason because the regulator hasn't explicitly permitted this. But as a fintech, we were like, well, that doesn't really make sense just to say no. Um, you're going to have to eliminate wet signatures at some point, probably sooner rather than later, because there's already markets that are doing this. So what are you going to need to be comfortable with that? And how can we help you to that point? So that consultative approach is something that I've found consistently differentiates fintechs working with regulators across the market compared with traditional compliance teams and banks um, who... They don't want to do anything they're not explicitly told they can do, you know? Okay. That's, that's a really interesting point about the relationship, right? Because it sounds like the regulators, they've been very tied to this idea of the wet signature for decades, probably at that stage, right? And then you showed them a new a new normal, right? A new, a new potential uh, solution. And so if we apply this to the idea of AI and AI regulation, one of the, one of the things that regulators across the world have been very clear about is... They don't want any black box mechanics, right? They want to know exactly what's happening with your AI modeling and how your AI models are reaching their decisions based on any compliance issues. So is there actually, do you think there's actually a real need for that uh, regulatory, I guess, openness when it comes to AI? And do you think that's going to be the case forever or for, at least for the next 30 years? Um, well, you know, I, I, I think the, I think, trying to understand AI 
um, you know, in that way and saying you can't have a black box function. We need to know explicitly what it's doing. Um, I, I don't, you know, part of the advantage that AI is bringing us um, when we look at modeling in particular is it's finding patterns that humans don't find. And so um, that would mean that um, we might be able to see the output of the black box and what goes in, but we may not understand how the AI has come to that. Now, there are, you know, various organizations working on sort of backtracking that within, um, you know, the, the LLMs and, and so forth to, to get more insights into that. But I think that misses the, the point of the way AI will work, you know, and um, I think you need to say, what is it that we want AIs to be able to do? Where does it, you know, this is the alignment problem. Where does it fit in society? And what are the, what are the boundaries or, you know, the guardrails that we need for the safe operation of artificial intelligence? That's far, far more important for us to give AI those inputs than trying to reverse engineer what AI has done and try to figure out whether it's good or bad, you know, in that respect. So I think, um, I, I think, um, and I also think that if you look at the whole regulatory space, we are essentially um, going to have to create AI licensing or regulation more broadly. And I think that's where the sort of ethical codes of conducts or ethical guardrails would need to come in. Okay, that's that's interesting though, because one of the problems I think every person experimenting with ChatGPT uh, at the moment is finding is how to get around those guardrails, right? How to trick the AI into doing that. So there's a, I think that's going to be like a, I mean that's going to be a common back and forth probably for as long as AI exists in its current state, right? Um, but I just, I just wanted I mean, to, to move on. You know, one of the core problems when you start talking about things like financial crime and ethics and so forth, you know, um, is you know, for us to build safe AI, we really need to have ethical standards that we agree upon. And, you know, with the political environment, the way it is today in the West, you know, that's almost impossible, you know, like, um, you know, controversially, but, you know, if you had a medical AI that gives you um, diagnostics and gives you, uh, you know, advanced health recommendations, how do you, um, how do you program or code the ethics for that AI when it comes to the treatment of trans people, right? Now, we can't even agree on these ethics today when it comes to law. So how is it that we create a, you know, a, a code of ethics for AI to safely operate it? That, that's the biggest problem facing the implementation of AI. It's not the black box function. It's the fact that we are using these machine learning approaches to sort of mimic human behavior and where we have problems with AI is where existing biases and, and existing systemic issues come, you know, get translated into AI. And the only reason we, the only way we can eliminate those is some sort of overarching ethical code of conduct. And that's, uh, that requires consensus, which is very difficult to get right. Yeah, I was, I was going to ask you if you think that maybe in the future AI might be setting the regulatory agenda rather than humans, but it sounds like... Uh... It'll be it'll be the same I mean, either way by default, right? Yeah. You know, you, you could you, it could could happen like that. AI might say, you know, come come to you know help us build those uh, consensus mechanisms. But the other thing is that um, globally, um, we are now you know we've seen a pattern over the last 10, 20 years where um, certainly the United States is no longer leading regulation globally. Uh, you know, when we look at the GDPR and PSD2 and so forth, 
those regulations have become templates for the rest of the world. The US has been forced to adopt that because, you know, American companies operating in Europe. And the same, I think, is going to be true of, um, you know, AI regulations. It's either going to be China or the EU that will set the regulatory patterns. So you, if you've got a country like, I don't know, you know, somewhere in Latin America, like Argentina or, you know, Chile, they're not going to start from scratch with AI regulations. They're going to take the best developed AI regulations that are out there and try and copy them with some localization. So that's why you're essentially going to have this sort of global approach to regulation emerge. And that's, that's good because when we need interoperability for AI cross-border, you're going to have to have consensus on regulation. So, um, no, I, I, that's the way I sort of see it. That's, that's really interesting because I would say from a financial crime perspective, the US is still very much, well, maybe maybe not the global leader, but still very much at the top, right? Uh, thanks in part because of dollar hegemony, right? The the reach of um, the SEC is ridiculous. Uh, everyone, everyone is scared of having the dollar withdrawn from them, right? And I guess... If, if the US persists in not taking a more tech forward approach and uh, not being as involved uh, with driving regulations forwards, do you, do you think that's going to have an impact on the developmental ability of fintechs and financial institutions in the US and to grow internationally? Already, you know, already we can see that. I mean, you know, when, when you look at smart contracts, um, you know, which is sort of how we will um, implement uh, trade cross-border and at a market level you know, between companies. And um, you cannot run smart contracts on the US dollar. By the time you build an intelligence layer around the US dollar, so it'll work with a smart contract, you've built a central bank digital currency, right? Um, China is 10 years ahead of the US when it comes to CBDCs. So, um, and, and that the smart contracts will kill the dollar hegemony. The U.S. doesn't really know what to do because it's so dominant with the U.S. dollar now. If they start talking about CBDCs, like suddenly they accept the premise that CBDCs are required, then everyone's going to say, well, why have you been so late at that? Why is China so far ahead of that? You know, which model should we choose? What's the American model? They don't have a model for a CBDC yet. So, you know, um, and, uh, you know, China has uh, is, is been very clear that they want to create these cross-border trade relationships using, um, you know, wholesale CBDCs at a minimum to um, reduce the the dominance of the US dollar to de-dollarize the world when it comes to trade. And part of their um, you know, policy approach on that is they don't want to get hit with US sanctions in the future. And they want to still be able to trade even if the US pulls, uh, you know, pulls sanctions based on the US dollar, which is the only lever they have against China right now, really, or military maybe. But um, so I, I think there is a change coming, and um, I think it's really going to be around that shift uh, uh, to autonomous markets and autonomous corporations and autonomous trade, where U.S. is just not ready for that because you know the U.S. is very rearward-looking when it comes to their regulatory approach. And when you talk about fintech specifically, you know I can go to the U.K. today, or I can go to the EU, or I can go to Singapore or Hong Kong, and I can start a fintech digital bank in those markets. And I need about a million dollars of capital adequacy to get started, you know, at the entry level for my digital bank. In the US, there's no such thing as a digital banking license. You need a full charter. You're going to have to have at least $50 million in capital adequacy. So, you know, how many fintechs are going to go down the charter route? 
So then what's happened is you've been dependent on banking as a service platforms and the US regulators have really hit those BAAS uh, platforms really hard recently to try and basically stamp out you know, these new entrants coming to the market. Um, so the US has been very protective of the traditional banks and that's why you, know, um, you have Chime that's doing quite well in the States, but the largest challenger banks in the world are not in the US and that's because they don't have a digital channel. Yeah, I think a few years back, uh, I can't remember if it was OFAC or one of the other the many, OCC many, in the OCC, yeah. Yeah, they, they tried to credit. I, the New York FTS, um, yeah. you know, um, they were sued by essentially the New York Fed um, to, because the argument was if the OCC created a digital fintech charter, then it would not be a level playing field that the banks who have to comply with things like the CRA the Community Reinvestment Act, which requires them to keep branches open in cities that you know, only have one branch and things like that, that it was no longer an equal playing field, that these digital players would have uh, you know, an advantage. Um, and so that's what's really prevented the US from having sort of fintech licensing infrastructure there. But there is, there is an element there, right, of how important is growth when you already have massive market capture, right? So First Citizens Bank obviously bought Silicon Valley Bank earlier this year. Uh, that was a bit of a unique situation. I think uh, JP Morgan also bought a bank uh, back in 2022, bought a fintech, sorry, back in 2022. And Visa just bought um, Pismo, the core banking provider earlier this year as well, right? So they are growing through acquisition. Is that is that enough, do you think? Uh, especially- I mean, you know, if, if you look at innovation as a metric, um, you know, let's, let's look at, um, the last 10 years in the United States. Um, they still don't have real-time real time payments broadly in the market. They have the Fed now, which we've all been joking for the last few years. We called it Fed later. Um, you know, they have Fed now, but, uh, you know, it's it's less than 20% of banks have, have adopted this. So for most people in America, it's still going to take you five days to do a bank-to-bank -bank transfer. I mean, this is the 21st century. I mean, it sounds crazy because the EU's had this what since gyro since the nineties or whatever late nineties, you know, and, and certainly PSD two um, more recently. Um, so the US doesn't have that. The US was the last country in the world to adopt the EMV standard. North Korea adopted the EMV standard before the United States did. And when you speak to regulators in the US about why that is, they will simply say because it was a European standard, it wasn't an American standard, right? Um, and the, the, the thinking was the U S would come up with a better standard than the world would, you know, go onto it, but that's not really what's happened. Mobile wallets. Um, you know, uh, I think last year, um, the U S did something like $800 billion of payments across, uh, the mobile wallets It's supposed to be 2 trillion this year. The you know, Chinese mobile wallets did 50 trillion last year across their mobile wallets. Um, you know, so. Yeah, um, like the biggest fintech in the world is Ant Group out of uh, out of China. Um, you know, and obviously they've been under some pressure recently. But you've got you've got these massive uh, fintechs around the world that have that have grown. Not many of them are out of the United States. So when you look at innovation net broadly, you know, at, at a market level, the U.S. has slipped significantly behind places like China. Right, and I would say on payments alone. The U.S. is at least ten years behind China now, so you so can you can say they're still the largest you know financial center in the world, but um, you know at at what point 
does their lack of innovation um, and their lack of openness as a market affect their ability to compete? And I would say that's already happened. So, I mean, what I'm, what I think the the real lesson there is then is a there's a really long road to hoe ahead of the U.S. market, full stop. But also, it means that digital transformation, adoption of new technologies, uh, adoption of I guess SaaS solutions, and and engaging with the the digital financial landscape is really vital for the U.S. market, full stop. Yes. Yeah, right. Too. And JP Morgan has made significant investments. You mentioned, you know, uh, an acquisition. They've actually made investments at all partnerships with um, over fifteen hundred fintechs around the world. So, um, you know, you, you could say JP Morgan's not sort of letting this hold them back, but they're spending one point seven, one point eight billion dollars a year to sort of um, keep that innovation cycle going. But there's not a lot of pressure on community banks and credit unions and smaller banks in the U.S. to to innovate. And so, um, you know, when the pandemic happened, we saw a lot of deposit shift to the larger banks and the fintechs because those uh, community banks and credit unions couldn't operate digitally. You know, they couldn't open an account um, online. Um, they, you know, they couldn't, you know, do sort of some of the basic stuff that you'd you'd figure sort of as a baseline for sort of fintech operation. Yeah. So, I mean, that's, that's obviously going to change things quite significantly for those, for those banks. And they, they must be, I would hope, are they already implementing plans at least to, to solve for the, the money lost during the COVID period. Um, but the, one of the things is when you, when you typically revamp your compliance uh, to deal with more digital solutions, there's, there's a lot of uh, freed up real estate in terms of your employees, right? There a lot of, there's a lot more ability to focus on the on the bigger issues and the on the bigger investigations. But if we combine this with the idea of all these acquisitions that are happening as well, which which is happening yeah. just globally at the moment, how do you think um, AI and automation can affect these the new problems that these regulatory and compliance teams are going to face? Because they're going to be significantly bigger and have significantly more problems to, to handle. Yeah, I mean, if I look at the end state, um, you know, I, I've written a series of books on the errors of banking, you know, bank 1.0 being traditional, bank 2.0 being the self-service error. So that's, you know, ATM machines, uh, telephone banking, early internet banking. Then um, bank three was the mobile era, bank four is embedded, uh, finance embedded banking or ubiquitous banking, as I called it in bank four. And then bank five is autonomous banking, right? So bank five is when, um, you know, the, the bank is largely an algorithm or sets of algorithms. So if you take a bank like JP Morgan Chase or um, you know, Lloyd's, TSB, you know, HSBC, you're going down from something like 150,000 employees to maybe a few thousand employees managing algorithms in the 2050s. The bank is an AI. And so if you look at that as the end state, because there's almost nothing in banking that can't be automated in the future, you know, um, then reg the regulatory function will be AI. Uh, you'll have, from a compliance perspective, the supervisory role won't be examiners going out to banks, checking if they're compliant. It'll be an algorithm checking your stack, checking your algorithms to make sure they're compliant. Um, you, you know, you will have um, a AI regulatory uh, overview, so um, you won't you won't go to a, a a central bank to get your bank AI regulated. 
um, you know, those AIs will be licensed by an AI regulatory authority. So um, the central banking function and the licensing function that we think of today, it's all going to be sort of blown apart by this tech. And in the short term, you know, the, the path, the sort of middle ground of that is increasingly having the stress testing function, um, you know, the financial crime reporting element being an autonomous function, you know, in, in integrated between the regulator and the bank. Um, and that's, that's sort of the tech stack that I see emerging over the next 15 years or so. Essentially fully autonomous banks that are run by an AI and a handful of people? Well, eventually, by 2050, yeah. Um, and so what you think of as a bank won't be, you know, I mean, m most banks will not have branches beyond the 2040s. You know, there'll be some uh, human contact elements uh, preserved in some instances, but uh, largely this is a generational shift. Our kids, you know, longer term just won't won't use branches, so there won't be econ any economic basis for that. Um, and so you move into these highly autonomous marketplaces um, to be competitive as an economy. You have to automate as much business and as much of the market function as possible. So the more you have to sign a piece of paper the less, you know, competitive you can be as, as an economy or a marketplace. So, you know, you'll, you'll be pushing to automate as much as possible. Autonomous delivery bots, you know, drones delivering packages, autonomous taxis driving around the place, you know, um, you know, health algorithms that manage your health and tell you when to go to the doctor even before you know you're sick, you know, this type of stuff we hear, um, you know, talked about. And, you know, we're talking about 30 years or 40 years of development to get to that point. Uh, but in the meantime, um, you know, if, if we look at how to ensure technical compliance, increasingly more and more of the regulatory uh, or compliance function is built into code. Mm -hmm. And the more that that goes into code, then we're going to have to have some sort of AI based mechanism to check that the code is compliant, right? Rather than it being the process and policy within the bank. But the flip side of this, right, is that AI isn't just in the hands of the angels, right? It's not just in the sides of, of regulators and lawmakers and, and banks and all that. Organized crime gangs, terrorist units, they're all going to get their hands on AI eventually. Well, they're already using AI, right? Um, how, how, does, how does that compete? Again, how, does, how, does that, how do those two realities um, gel together, right? When you have a more AI-focused fo approach to banking, but you also have a more AI-focused approach to crime. Does it not equal out? Is there not a, a zero sum state here? Well, I, I mean, the the dark horse here is um, quantum computing, because quantum is, will be a game changer. And I don't know whether you remember, your listeners might remember this. It was probably about a year ago that there was a big kerfuffle in the states about this Chinese weather balloon mm -hmm. you know, that was shot down by F twenty two. Yeah, and lots of balloons. Right, lots of balloons. Right. And, um, you know, when you see the pictures of these balloons, they had these massive solar panels and their stack of aerials and, you know, satellite dishes and stuff. And so um, there's actually a, a, a term for this, and I can't remember. D Dave Birch used it the other day. I was listening to one of his things. But what the Chinese are doing is they're trying to capture all of these military signals in the U.S. Because even though they can't decrypt um, these military signals today, they, they know that quantum computing will allow them to decrypt all of that information in the future. None of our current encryption technologies will work. And so that sort of means that 
there is no security in the quantum world in, in the 2040s with, with quantum tech because all of the existing, you know, your SSL encryption on the browser, you know, 256K SSL encryption, private key encryption, all of that will be, be able to theoretically be broken by quantum. So if you want to secure those networks in the future, you're also going to have to use quantum encryption. And that yeah. be the break unbreakable form of encryption. So that's sort of the the game changer. But in the meantime, then you've got to start looking at you've got to treat hacks and criminal behavior not as the way we do it today in terms of thinking about it as a crime and identifying the crime. You've got to treat financial crime like we do network security. And you've got to say, let's identify a suspicious actor. That comes from a number of data points, primarily behavior. Once we identify that suspicious actor, then we shut him out of the system, right? He can't transact anymore. Let's shut down all of his bank accounts, you know, but this requires global coordination on a data, on a data sharing, um, you know, basis at a minimum. Mm. Okay. I mean, that, that makes sense, right? I, I was reading the other day that McKinsey says, well, they're theorizing that by 2030, prime factorization is going to be possible through quantum computing. That's, for anyone who's not aware, prime factorization is what's required to break through all the SSL, AES type encryptions we use right now. And that's a that's a very scary idea to have. 2030 is not super far away. I'm um, not sure if it'll be 2030. It's possible, you know. Um, I certainly think 2035. You know, it's definitely within the, the ballpark, you know, and again, you'd be able to use AI to combat some of that stuff. But th this, the other element of this is, um, you know, if you, if you think about banking and you think about uh, tech stacks, you know, the other thing we know today is that if you're a, um, you know, a modern digital bank, a challenger bank in the cloud, you're a lot more secure than an on-premise uh, core system, you know, from a traditional bank. Like significantly more secure. So if you want to be, if you want to have the most secure systems in the future, you're also going to have to move into cloud architecture, right? Um, and cloud, conceivably, we're going to be able to link quantum into cloud somehow. We don't quite know how to do that today, but it's not, you know, not every bank is going to go out and buy their own quantum computer, I don't think. I don't think they'll have, be able to, to be honest. I think the uh, the amount of money it takes just to R&D a quantum computer is is absurd, right? Well, but that's, that's an interesting point because... Like you were saying about network security and this this whole idea of network effects around financial crime, right? So the problem with fighting financial crime is there are it's not a binary, right? There are multiple variables. I mean, to take a, a term from quantum computing, there's lots of spins, right? There's lots of various uh, approaches. Yeah, exactly. And there's lots of things that need to be accounted for. There's countless suspicious scenarios, and those at the moment are being boiled down to comparatively few rules, comparatively few red flags to look out for when you're onboarding customers, when you're monitoring transactions, etc. But how do you think quantum can be integrated into the fight against financial crime on a on a short-term basis, right? Like before we get to algorithm banking, uh, which you said 2050, if if quantum computing comes and say 2030 and the 2040s, how, how is that going to be handled? Well, I mean, you know, all of those encryption mechanisms we use today, replacing that with polymorphic encryption or, you know, or quantum-based encryption technology, I, I think will get us most of the way there. Um, the, you know, the view is that while quantum could be able to break significant amount of the encryption technologies we have today, 
it also will be able to create unbreakable encryption, right? That is sort of mathematically impossible to break um, and adaptive um, algorithms. But AI could also essentially do that. AI could react in real time. It could understand the attack vectors. It could identify those like we have, you know, virus software today and change the encryption in real time, you know? Um, so that's, uh, that's another approach. We don't necessarily need uh, quantum for that sort of adaptive thing. Uh, but, but beyond encryption, when we talk about behaviors and financial behaviors, how do you see those things interacting with each other? Well, on the quantum side, um, I don't know. That's something I'd have to, um, have to have a look at. But on the AI side, we can definitely identify, uh, you know, behavioral heuristics. We're already doing that for payments today. You know, so, you know, if you suddenly, you know, if you're based in the UK and you make all of your transactions within sort of 50 miles of your home or 50 Ks of your home, and then suddenly, you know, um, your, your card pops up in Australia doing a transaction, then, you know, we can identify that as, as behavior outside of your, your traditional behavior. So there's sort of behavioral heuristics piece. That's something that is, is underutilized right now when it comes to things like identity and uh, behavior of customers. So that's, I think sort of core infrastructure for banks these days, the behavioral heuristics piece. And, and as I said, the biggest change that we can make isn't actually coding in AI and things like that. It's just coming up with digital identity standards. Um, and banks can be involved in that. Um, you know, they can be part of the, um, the trusted partners that are, that are uh, helping build identity over time. But I don't think banks have any role in identity in the future because I think, you know, 21st century economies will rely on digital identity. You want to access healthcare, you have to provide your digital identity. You want to travel, you know, you'll have to provide your digital identity. So um, I think identity is just national infrastructure. And I know there's a lot of debate around whether government should be running this or it should be self-sovereign identity and so forth. The more we argue about, um, you know, who should be doing identity, the more criminals sort of have free reign, essentially. Digital identity is the single biggest thing that we can do to stop financial. So if, if I mean, what that means, though, to take that to the logical next step, is if digital identity is the single biggest thing we can do to stop financial crime, that means that KYC is the single biggest gatekeeper against financial crime. Like, I know what I probably... KYC today? Maybe. Kill your customers. <laughs> okay. Kill your customers with friction, kill your customers with paperwork, whatever, you, however you want to look at it. KYC has become an anachronism, really. It's, you know, it's, it's no, it no longer helps people get access to financial services in much of the world. KYC is an exclusionary device, um, you know, for financial uh, inclusion. Um, you know, so KYC in the way we've, we've thought about it has, you know, we have to get rid of it. Yeah. It's not, it's not helping anyone yeah i mean i think there's a there's a real need for digital transformation around the kyc piece right and to to really understand your customer properly and to onboard them properly you need to have a much more frictionless journey that understands your customer and doesn't block them out with lots of form filling and lots well, of what, why is it when you go to another bank you have to completely redo all of your kyc from scratch you know what why that doesn't make any sense you know why is it you go to a different hospital that you know that you know that you haven't been to before? You've got to do all that KYC again. It really doesn't make any sense for financial services organizations or hospitals or these sorts of um, uh, players to be collectors of identity information. Um, you know, particularly with the identity fraud that we see so rampant today, it just makes sense to have centralized identity. You know, I mean, that's uh, 
that that's sort of the basis. And so when we look at um, we look at the Chinese market as an example, and people talk about civil rights and all of those things, and I get that. But let's face it, um, you know, Alipay has just for ten million dollars worth of transactions over the Alipay network, they have just sixty four cents of fraud. Right, point zero 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 six basis points of fraud. And in the, the, the UK is something like 10.6 basis points and North America is 11.2 basis points of 10,000 times higher. Why is it? It's, you could argue it's because Alipay has better tech stack and they have better algorithms. But in reality, mostly it's just about the fact that they have uh, you know, a biometric based identity, facial recognition, voice, fingerprint, et cetera, built into their stack. Does that mean social credit scores are our future? Well, uh, you know, I, I, it's, I mean, if you watch, uh, um, uh, you know, Black Dark Black Mirror or whatever it is, yeah, yeah, Black Mirror, yeah, yeah Black Mirror you, you know, you, you'd believe that's the case. Um, and to some extent, um, you know, I, th- I think AI does give more control over crime um, in in terms of identifying antisocial behaviour, and that's a that can be a control mechanism for the government for sure, but. What are the trade-offs? Um, the trade-offs, you will never be secure ever again, or there'll be some element of um, social credit scoring, right? Like, you know, that, that's, that's sort of really the, the argument. So, um, you know, I understand um, that we do need to have um, some, a, some guide rails on identity in terms of what government can and can't do with that and who has access to that information and how it can be used. But you know, let's face it, um, the identity of the, the 19th century, you know, a paper identity document, um, you know, it, it's just not secure. So the more we persist with you taking in a physical driver's license or a passport into a bank to identify yourself, um, the more, uh, you know, we are just going to continue to lose uh, traction in the fight against financial crime. Sorry, so... Usually I finish off an episode by asking guests what they think about AI or the far future of regulation, but I think we've uh, covered that pretty comprehensively. So, uh, so instead, I'm going to kind of swap it around a bit and ask you, what do you think uh, is going to be the big thing to happen in 2024 for banks, FIs, and fintechs? What do you think is going to be the key thing that happens next year? Mm. Yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm I'm more comfortable talking about ten years' time or twenty years' time, honestly. But in 2024, uh, look, I think um, I think everyone's going to be talking about AI, um, and I think what we will start to see for the first time is generative AI in terms of embedded banking or finance responsiveness. So what I mean by that is. When, when banks talk about personalization in the digital era, what they're really talking about is building in, you know, individual models for you as a customer so that I can understand what you need when you need it. So as a bank, I can be there in the moment to solve your problem because customers simply won't come and ask you for a product in the future. If they have to ask you for a product, like for example, if you have to if the only way you know that your customer is buying a home is if they come and ask you for a mortgage, you are no longer in the mortgage business. Because if you don't understand their intent to buy a home and you can't offer them home financing when they walk into a listed real estate property, you are no longer seling mortgages. You've been pushed out by the technology, technologically 
enable competitors. So I think we are going to start to see a form of generative AI in financial services that essentially is the way we attack models of embedded financing for one. Interesting. Yeah, I, I think the idea of walking into a real estate agent and getting your mortgage offer straight away would be game changing, right? It'd be yeah. amazing just to know exactly what you can. Well, I mean, can... we we will have the tech for that, I'm sure. And you know, if you look at, um, you know, like smart glasses tech from Meta or you know Vision Pro and things like that, where that goes by 2030, you know, expect people will be walking around with smart glasses that can give them a home financing offer on the on the head-up display as you walk into a listed property. You know, that's the way we're going to think about mortgage business in the future. Sounds like there's a it's a very exciting future for the finance space full stop. And uh, I think things aren't going to change for at least the next 30 years, right? Well, they're going to keep changing for the next yeah, 30 years rather. Constant change. You know, if you... I, there's a great quote that, um, you know, I'm, I'm based in Bangkok half-time and, and there's a bank here called CM Commercial Bank and I was doing some work with those guys a couple of years ago and the, the CEO said basically the same thing. The next 30 years is going to be a, a period of constant change and constant adaptation for the brand. And he said, um, you know, if, if you're comfortable with that, but you're working in a branch right now and you're not sure what you're going to do, don't worry. We'll retrain you. If you want to get into AI or data science, we can help you make that transition. So your skills are, are continue to be relevant for the bank. But if you're not comfortable with that change and you don't like the the way this is going, We'll help you find a job outside of the bank. Well, I mean, it sounds like a great CEO, to be honest. So, Brett, it's been really great to have you on the show. I found this incredibly interesting. If people want to follow you online, I mean, admittedly, you do seem to be everywhere uh, or get in touch with you. Uh, what's the best place they can reach you? Where's the best place to find you? www.brettking.com. That's with two Ts. Or go to www.thefuturist.com um, to check out uh, the... Uh, uh, the Futurist or BreakingBanks.com to check out the uh, the two podcasts. Or uh, if you're on LinkedIn or Twitter, um, you know you can find me there. Or X as it's known. <laughs> Brilliant. Thanks. Thank you for listening to this episode of Finergo Fintalks. I'm Damna Sigadu and I've been joined by Brett King, futurist, multiple founder, author, and podcaster. Make sure to subscribe to the show. It's available wherever you choose to get your podcasts and you can always find us at finergo.com.